Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. For decades, children were ripped from their families and trained to become brutal killers, child soldiers in northern Uganda. The conflict went largely unnoticed to the rest of the world. The man leading the rebel group responsible for the terror eluded capture. But one film hoped to make that very man famous, not to glorify the horrors he committed, but to find him and bring him to justice. If you've been on Twitter or Facebook recently, you've probably seen a new campaign called Coney 2012. It's gone viral. One million hits per million hour. Times. 60 100 million people have now watched. social media at its best. It's uniting people all across the world. Is this the new way to move the world to action? But this movie is not without critics. Critics say the film manipulates the facts. Simplifying the story. Oversimplifying a wildly complex that the issue. message is too late. Joseph Coney and his forces have been significantly reduced. Pro-war activism. Utterly naive to By next week, this will be a passing fact. These white Westerners. I'm journalist Erica Vella, and today we continue our look into the film that fascinated the world. We find out what happened to invisible children and its co-founder, Jason Russell. And also, where is Joseph Coney now? This is part two of Global News What Happened to Coney 2012. If you haven't listened to part one, please stop and go back and listen to that episode first. In that episode, we told you about the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, its infamous leader, Joseph Kony. We shared with you the stories of Jolie and Dominic, two people who as children were abducted by the rebel group. For many people across the world, this conflict went on largely unnoticed for years. That is until 2012, when Joseph Kony became a household name. For 26 years, Kony has been kidnapping children into his rebel group, the LRA. The film was released by the not-profit Invisible Children. And today, you'll hear from Jason Russell, the man who was at the heart of the campaign to make Kony famous. So originally, I didn't really have the idea to become a documentarian. Um, I wanted to be a storyteller, a filmmaker. I went to USC's film school, and I was actually excited and focused on making musicals, bringing back the Hollywood musical. At the time um, I went to college, there weren't a lot of musicals being made. Um, but I always had an interest at a young age in injustice. In his early 20s, he went on a mission trip to Africa. It was an international volunteering opportunity through a faith-based organization in the U.S., I didn't really like the mission in terms of the evangelical outreach, but I really fell in love with Kenya, which is where I went. And on the plane ride back, I told myself, I'm going to go back um, to Africa and I'm going to tell a story. And I didn't really know where, but I had been reading about the genocide in Sudan. Um, And I couldn't believe that two million people had been killed. And it didn't seem like the world was really talking about it. So I had got a camera off eBay and asked anyone that I knew to come with me. And it ended up being a 21-year-old guy named Bobby and a 19-year-old lifeguard named Laren. And the three of us went with a camera. We bought off eBay a very small budget and thought we were going to tell the story of the genocide in Sudan. In 2003, Jason got in touch with Jolie. If you recall from our last episode, Jolie was a former child soldier with the LRA who escaped in 1989. We found her contact through a local organization in San Diego. And, you know, I think she wanted us to tell the story of her people, the Acholi people, and what was going on. But we were hyper-focused on Sudan. And so South Sudan is right above northern Uganda. And so we went to northern Uganda to interview refugees who had fled the violence in South Sudan to northern Uganda. And the United Nations had them in different camps and was taking care of them as much as they could. We didn't really know about the war in northern Uganda until it came upon us, until like the violence really intercepted 
this one road from Kampala to Gulu when a car in front of us was blown up by the Lord's Resistance Army. And that forced us to go back to the town of Gulu and, you know, see the night commuters sleeping in the streets by the tens of thousands, um, children really running for their lives. And it was that story that captured us. And so we shifted our focus from Sudan to Northern Uganda and the Lord's Resistance Army and specifically the communities that had been affected by this conflict. At the time, it had been 17 years of unrest and violence. Jason, Laren, and Bobby documented what was happening right in front of them. We were not trained as journalists. We had never made a documentary before, but we became friends with the community. And we felt this urgency to their lives, you know, having a purpose and a meaning. We felt that we couldn't do anything except for tell the story. They spent two months in northern Uganda. During that time, they formed relationships with some of the children. That first night, we went to the bus park. That's where, you know, they slept at bus parks, at churches, different places where they felt safe. Um, Of course, they weren't safe. There wasn't really an armed guard protecting them. And the LRA would often raid these night commuting centers. So it was really like hundreds of kids. And then they could just pick which ones they wanted and they would tie them up and abduct them. So when we arrived at the bus park, we were asking around for any kid that could speak English. We thought it would be, you know, really powerful if if they could speak English and communicate, you know, to the camera what their story is. And the first child that came up was Jacob. So he, he was really the first kid that we met. And we interviewed him several times over that original trip. And it was the final time that actually is in the rough cut and in Kony 2012. So it is better when you kill us. And if, if possible, you can kill us, you kill us. For us, we don't want now to stay because you we don't are, want to stay on earth. We are only two, no one taking care of us. We are not going to school. So you would rather we, die than stay on earth. Yes. Now, now, even now. Even now. And just seeing that sadness and the overwhelming anxiety and fear that he had was incredibly motivating to me and I think to Bobby and Laren because. We felt that he had become a friend, you know, a brother in some ways. And, you know, on that first trip as well, we didn't know how bad it truly was. So I I still think about that if we hadn't met Jacob or we hadn't gotten that interview of his raw emotions, I think that it would be a different thing. You know, the, the violence and the situation was so intense and... Honestly, like we were in northern Uganda, but most journalists or most people wouldn't even go there because it was so unstable. But because of our ignorance or naivete, like we went there and and just decided to turn on the camera and do all that we could. Jason was shocked by how many people were living in internally displaced persons camps in Uganda. Essentially, 90% of people in that region were displaced from their homes. They were moved because of violence, and they were put into camps um, by the government for protection. But they weren't being fed, and there was 800 to a bathroom. And I just remember interviewing people in the camps, and they were, like, crying out, like, tell your government, tell someone, please let somebody know we need help. And when you witness that kind of desperation, I think that it— stays in you and it really motivates you to do everything you can to make their suffering diminish. The UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, said at the conflict's peak in 2005, there were over 1.8 million people living in 251 camps across 11 districts of northern Uganda. It's something that I spoke with Laura C. about. She's an assistant professor of government at Colby College in Maine. The framing of this was it's for your own good. Um, you know, we can only protect you if you're if you're kind of corralled into these particular places. But that means that, you know, people who 
didn't feel unsafe or didn't want to flee, didn't want to leave their homes, still had to. It meant a significant ab, uh, impact on agricultural production and livelihoods. Um, you know, if you have to leave your farm behind, you can't cultivate the crops. Um, you can't maintain the land in, in ways that keep it healthy year to year for production. So you have people who were born in these camps or who were very young children when they were taken to these camps who, who don't even know their home. And you add to that the fact that there is mass experience of trauma. Everybody has you know, witnessed violence, heard about violence, lost family members to violence. Um, many, many, many people have experienced violence. Um, and you have the return of escapees from the LRA. Um, so former child soldiers, girls who have been, young women who have been uh, sexually enslaved, who often have born children, coming back and all of these people need help. Jason, Bobby, and Laren left Uganda in 2003, equipped with hours upon hours of footage and interviews. And out of that, the group created a film titled Invisible Children, The Rough Cut, which aimed to expose the plight of child soldiers and the devastation caused by the LRA. The only problem was they had no idea how they were going to share it. Remember, in 2004, Facebook was just starting out, and other social media platforms hadn't even been invented yet. It started really small, just three or four screenings, and then we continued to get invited places and share it. And we created DVDs. I, th I think it's really interesting to think about it in terms of we started in an analog world. So what I mean by that is we had DVDs and that was the way we would share the movie. And we would package two DVDs in one kit so that you could keep one for yourself and then hand it off. And we would even just give them out for free. If you didn't have $20, here, just take it and share the story. We even, on college campuses, we created these posters and we'd put them in the hallways of freshman dorms. And on it were three DVDs. The first one said, take it. The next one said, watch it. The next one said, return it. So people would take it off and then they would, they would play it and then they'd hand it off to a friend. And we even had like house parties where people could put in their number on the DVD of what they saw, and then you could track the DVD as it moved around to different house parties or different universities. At the end of the movie, originally, everybody kept asking, what can we do to help? And we thought, well, we don't really know. I mean, we're, we were just focused on making the documentary. But then we had the idea of building in a call to action at the end of the movie to make something super simple and applicable that somebody who watched Invisible Children, The Rough Cut Get them to get involved, get them to give, get them to think of their time, their talent, their money. And then out of that was birthed the nonprofit Invisible Children. Invisible Children officially started in 2004. It was a nonprofit charitable organization that raised funds and used the money in part to produce awareness films. Here's Jason to explain their goals further. All of the programs that were birthed after that trip had to do with education or trying to stop the violence. And we did both at the same time. So Invisible Children eventually grew to become a fundraising machine, you know, based off of $20 donations from high school and college students who were a part of the movement. And with that money, we were able to raise millions of dollars and help rebuild schools that existed there already and also put hundreds of kids through school as well as provide jobs for the parents. And then our main goal was to figure out what is it going to take to stop the violence? Who are the active players at trying to bring peace um, to this you know, rebel army who is unpredictable, who's been doing it for a long time? And so that's really where, where we turned our lens and we started to tell more and more stories and get involved in more of the political aspect of what it'll take to bring peace to northern Uganda. While Jason and his friends only learned of the conflict in Uganda in 2003, the war had been going on for almost two decades. While the average person in North America may have not known, it was very much on the radar of international, non-governmental, and governmental agencies. 
In fact, in 2003, the same year of Jason's initial trip, the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs for the UN, Jan Egeland, visited northern Uganda. He said, quote, Northern Uganda is one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. This is, above all, a war against children. They are abducted, abused, and violated. End quote. By 2006, there was a real effort to get a handle on the crisis, and there were multiple attempts for peace talks. Laura C. said the Ugandan government met with the LRA with hopes of reaching an agreement. So there were a series of peace talks that started in in 2006 and that successfully led to a ceasefire, um, I think in, in September of that year, so toward the end of 2006. Um, and that effectively, I mean, at the time we didn't know for sure, but but that effectively marked the end of the war in northern Uganda. The ceasefire in September of 2006 effectively did end the forms of violence that people were experiencing in the north. So, you know, the, the kidnapping raids stopped, um, the violent attacks on communities stopped. The peace talks, for the most part, were negotiated by lower-level commanders of the LRA. But at one point, Joseph Kony was in South Sudan, too. Progress had been made as both sides agreed to a ceasefire, and a lot of violence had ended in northern Uganda. But the biggest hang-up came a year earlier, in 2005. The International Criminal Court had issued indictments against the top leaders of the LRA. The International Criminal Court was established in 1998 with the purpose of trying individuals responsible for war crimes, people like Joseph Kony. So they don't try rank and file. Like, think about the Nazis, you know, the Nuremberg trials. They try the people who were in charge, the people who were most responsible. And that's the idea here. Um, you know, that that Kohn and his uh, associates have done significant harm and damage and should be held responsible for it. But we're not going to try all of the children that they have, um, you know, kidnapped and forced to do these terrible things. And they issued an arrest warrant for him on July 8th, 2005. He was wanted on 12 counts of crimes against humanity, murder, enslavement, sexual enslavement, rape, inhumane acts of inflicting serious bodily injury and suffering, and 21 counts of war crimes. There were other high-ranking members of the LRA that were also wanted by the ICC as well. But Laura explained that while the peace talks were ongoing, the Ugandan government largely opposed the indictments by the ICC because they thought it would interfere with their negotiations. And as it would turn out, they were very much correct about it. So these negotiations continue on until 2008. Um, and in 2008, Joseph Kwan himself is supposed to come and sign an agreement that will you know, be a peace agreement that, that ends this once and for all. But the rebels insist that, you know, the indictments have to be lifted. They don't want to come to a peace agreement with, um, with these indictments hanging over their heads, the possibility of going to jail. And, you know, the sort of mediators and diplomats keep trying and trying to come to work through, but the talks fall apart. And Cohen is able to leave. Um, and he and his movement sort of, I, well, not exactly disappear, but but are in, have been able ever since to operate in um, northeastern Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, southeastern Central African Republic, and then in parts of South Sudan. Joseph Kony and the LRA moved out of Uganda, but their reign of terror continued. Meanwhile, Invisible Children supporters participated in a global night commute on April 29, 2006, an event that took place in multiple cities across the U.S. and in cities in different parts of the world as well. We had around 80,000 people show up, walk from their house to their downtown city and sleep in the streets for one night in solidarity with the children who had been night commuting for years. It didn't seem like we were getting enough momentum fast enough to end it. And so we had friends who like lived and worked in DC and they created their own nonprofit, which partnered with Invisible Children. And they were hyper-focused on getting legislation passed so that we could have the US military embed with the Ugandan military and work with the African Union 
to remove Joseph Kony from the battlefield. The bill was called the Northern Uganda Reconstruction and Lord's Resistance Army Disarmament Act of 2009. It was signed into law by then-President Barack Obama in 2010. The law would have the U.S. invest into rebuilding parts of northern Uganda that had been affected by the war. But like Jason said, it would also have troops sent to Uganda to aid in the disarmament of the LRA. It marked a huge milestone in the fight against the LRA. Politicians, policymakers, people were listening. Meanwhile, Invisible Children was a successful not-for-profit in the U.S., and Jason said that's when the idea of Coney 2012 started to take shape. I remember exactly where I was when the idea came. It was in the hallway at Invisible Children, and the CEO, Ben Kesey, had just talked to Michael Poffenberger, who was the one who helped start Resolve. And... Michael said it's really hard to get meetings with senators and congressmen because they don't see this as a priority. They don't even know who Joseph Coney is. He said, if Joseph Coney was famous, I'd be able to get in the door. I'd be able to get meetings. And it struck me like a lightning bolt. I was like, yes, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make Coney famous. And so we thought, well, let's just try it. And As we were making it, I can promise you the whole team was like, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, I don't know if people will actually watch it. And so we kind of made it a rule when making it that every seven seconds of the movie has to keep you watching. And so we set the goal for 500,000 views for the year of 2012. And we had a bunch of ideas to like continue the momentum throughout the whole year. And we put Coney 2012 online and we hit 500,000 views within the first 12 hours, 24 hours, something like that. And then it just continued to build and build and build. Every hour after that was like a million views an hour and it just kept growing. And within a few days, it was being translated into all major languages around the world. And, you know, seven out of 10 of global tweets had something to do with Kony or Uganda or Invisible Children. And so that's really when we stepped into the phenomenon that is now known as Kony 2012. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. So what were Jason and Invisible Children hoping would come from this film? The intention of Coney 2012 was to not just bring to light this conflict and make Coney a household name, but it was to make sure that the U.S. troops and that any pressure from any government, including the International Criminal Court, stays on and keeps hyper-focused. You know, I think we... I like to think about it as Coney 2012 took about six months to create, but it was like 10 years in the making. It was like everything we had learned about activism, about putting things online, about what gets people motivated. And we put all of our tricks and tips into this movie. On March 5th, 2012, the film was released. And I remember seeing the posters on a bus stop and thinking somebody got out of their home printed these posters themselves and put them on this bus stop in my hometown. Like that was so surreal because it had been released maybe 24, 36 hours. And here's a physical manifestation of what we ask people to do. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. I think, you know, I left Gavin's, you know, preschool meeting in order to go outside and take a call with the Weinstein company who wanted to buy the film and like, have it win an Oscar. And then it just kept 
going from there, it was one person after the other who wanted to talk to us, who wanted to get the story out. You know, there were clothing stores that wanted to put the t-shirts in their stores. Um, We had no idea how many action kits we were going to sell. We eventually purchased every red blank t-shirt in North America. Like you couldn't find a red blank t-shirt because we had to fulfill all of these orders. And so it was really just a lot. I think the third day I was in LA doing many, many interviews back to back from one show to the next. And then I got on a red eye, got off the plane, stepped into the car and was on the Today Show. And then, you know, People Magazine, New York Times, it was just so overwhelming um, to feel that kind of energy. And in my mind, I didn't really see a backlash coming because, you know, for the most part, it was like, well, this is a good thing. We're stopping violence, right? And we're doing it in a creative way and we're getting as many people involved. So I didn't know at the time, but there's kind of this internet rule that anything that becomes big or viral, you have to wait three days. And on the third day, there will be a backlash. There will be a swing in the other direction. The backlash was something Jason couldn't have prepared for. They're saying we didn't do our research or did our fact check or that we oversimplified a complex story. But our goal was to simplify a complex story. Stephen Colbert has this great quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, is cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it's a self-imposed blindness because it's easier to criticize whoever is out there in the arena doing the work than to actually go out there, do the work, and get beat up for it. And so had we made mistakes, Invisible Children? Yes. But in the past, we were small enough and nimble enough where I would literally call anybody who had criticisms. I would be like, hello, and they would be surprised. Like, what, you're calling me? I said, I want you to know, we take what you said seriously and we really want to implement your ideas and we see your position. And, you know, most people, the strategy is just ignore the haters, but like, I wasn't like that. I wanted people to know we're real people. We hear your criticism. And because it was going so viral, everybody knew that if you were to talk about it, write about it, post about it, you would get views you would get clicks. So it was really this interesting thing where they were calling us clickbait and slacktivism, and yet everybody wanted to write about the story at the time because they would garner a larger audience, if that makes sense. Laura C. said the film misrepresented some of the realities in Uganda. My criticism of that video at the time and now is that it presented an outdated and oversimplified view of the conflict and what could be done, right? So... Um, For a lot of viewers who were encountering this crisis for the first time, the film left them with the idea that the crisis was still going on in northern Uganda, when in fact it had been over in northern Uganda for six years. And northern Uganda was at that time in the recovery phase, not in the... um, in the crisis, you know, immediate crisis phase. And that's not to discount what people were going through. They were still a lot of human suffering, but... The, the immediate threat of violence was gone by that point. And I think it left people with the impression that things were very different. So this idea that if we make Joseph Klein famous, we can end this crisis is some really questionable logic, right? Like there's, there's something missing in there. So we make him famous, we get the attention of powerful people, then what, right? Then what? And the film really neglects to point out that that the broader advocacy movement, including Invisible Children itself, had already been successful in getting the attention of powerful people, had already been very successful in mobilizing government resources to do something about this crisis. And so, you know, the timing on this was really weird. But the idea of oversimplifying a complex conflict isn't something new. There have been other examples of it in the past. You may remember the Save Darfur movement that was aimed at raising awareness of the violence that was happening in Sudan. 
or even the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls campaign after the abductions in Chibok, Nigeria, at the hands of Boko Haram, which we covered in the first season of What Happened To. I don't think anybody is like intentionally trying to be inaccurate in these situations, but these narratives are so incomplete that they become inaccurate. And when the narrative about the problem is inaccurate, the policy solutions are almost certainly going to be inaccurate as well. And I think that's where we run into the very real challenges that, you know, if you tell people, well, if we make Joseph Coney famous, we can end this suffering But you don't tell them that the suffering you've depicted on camera is already over um, and that the suffering, in fact, is in other countries now where the work of tracking down the bad guys is much, much more difficult um, right now than it would have been in northern Uganda 15 years ago. The oversimplification of the war in Uganda wasn't the only criticism. Some began questioning invisible children's finances and wondered where the money was being spent. They used it to make more films, to do more of this kind of awareness raising. And I think that the real question about 2012 is, is awareness raising of that nature what was necessary at that point? Um, Or were other forms of, you know, raising funds to support people in Uganda might have been a more useful uh, tactic at that time? But this is how it happened. So it's really kind of kind of a wasted opportunity in terms of political capital, in terms of um, mobilizing large numbers of, of people to care about something. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, just kind of an unrealistic view of how movements gain traction and, and get stuff done. Jason had this to say about the money that was being spent on creating films. I would say is that People were upset or confused about the money we would spend on videos and campaigns and merchandise. And the way that I feel about that is we started out as filmmakers. Invisible Children's origin story is out of a movie. We would not even have this conversation had we not prioritized telling the story. We were doing our best to make every intelligent decision around finances, around timeframes, around human resources. So if you don't if you don't like the fact that we were spending money on movies, then we're not the nonprofit for you. And we weren't spending a ton of money comparatively. We were doing um, what we thought was right. In order to speak to a generation through the medium in which they were digesting, which is short form content. Another criticism revolved around the white savior industrial complex. Nigerian-American author, photographer, and critic Teju Cole tweeted his seven-part response to Kony 2012. It reads, quote, From Sachs to Kristoff to Invisible Children to Ted, the fastest growth industry in the U.S. is the white savior industrial complex. The white savior supports brutal policies in the morning, founds charities in the afternoon, and receives awards in the evening. The banality of evil transmutes into the banality of sentimentality. The world is nothing but a problem to be solved by enthusiasm. This world exists simply to satisfy the needs, including, importantly, the sentimental needs of white people and Oprah. The white savior industrial complex is not about justice. It's about having a big emotional experience that validates privilege. Feverish worry over that awful African warlord. But close to 1.5 million Iraqis died from an American war of choice. Worry about that. I deeply respect American sentimentality the way one respects a wounded hippo. You must keep an eye on it, for you know it's deadly. Unquote. Teju's tweets were shared in The Atlantic and The New York Times. I asked Jason about this. I hadn't heard of, at that time of the white savior complex. I believe that there's an article about the white savior industrial complex. And it's taken me years to deconstruct that and realize like how damaging that narrative is and how I 
unintentionally perpetuated it, you know, it doesn't really matter your intentions, right? It's about the impact. And so I, I do feel that centering myself in the narrative, I don't know if there was another way because I was the one person at Invisible Children who was there from the beginning until that time. And so unfortunately, I don't like really being on camera or being the center. I would rather be the director behind the scenes, like pulling the levers and creating the the story. But because it was me going to tell the story again, similar to the rough cut, I felt that it was the best way to do it. And so I don't know what else to say except for we got to be aware and do better. We just got to do better. And I'm committed to that. Following the release of Coney 2012, Jason went from being a man who helped create a not-for-profit relatively unknown to the general public to international recognition overnight. And while his rise to the top was quick, the fall from grace was even faster. The mounting criticism and pressure took a toll on both Jason's physical and mental health, and the public was watching. On March 15th, 10 days after the release of Coney 2012, Jason had a very public breakdown that was caught on tape. He was hospitalized so authorities could assess his mental state. I asked Jason about this incident. I could go days without sleeping and I could just edit all night and then pound a Red Bull and keep going. I thought it was kind of a superpower. And so I would lay in bed during those 10 days of Coney 2012 and my heart would just be beating out of my chest, just racing. And especially towards the end, as like the criticism started to mount and things got really scary, you know, I didn't know it before this moment, but I'm bipolar too. So when that much energy happens, it felt like electricity was coming through me. And on that day, it was a morning, I had a friend come over and we were just talking calmly. And the only way I can explain it is that something snapped. It felt as though something was in me and controlling my body like a marionette, like a puppet. And everything else is super blurry and strange. And I became violent. And I remember the story in my head was I have to get to New York in the next 12 hours or Coney wins, which obviously who knows where that comes from. But that led me out into the street. I had a bathrobe and underwear on. Both of those things came off. Um, I was having delusions of grandeur is what they call it. And, you know, slapping the pavement and um, yelling at myself. And I, I, you know, it took me a long time to wind down and actually come back into my body and to be okay. And now I feel like I'm a part of a group or a club of individuals who have had breakdowns or who have been publicly shamed, you know, it it does hurt and it feels triggering. The internet feels triggering. There's so much on the internet about me and about Coney 2012. And really, I'm a sensitive person. I'm a people pleaser. I don't want to be made to look like a joke. For me, it's the most painful thing, but At the same time, I've been learning how to heal, you know, myself and heal my brain. And and maybe a part of my story is that I have a purpose around this conversation, you know, not that I'm an expert, but just that I'm kind of like, yeah, me too. It happened to me too. And unless you've gone viral and you've been publicly shamed on your worst day, You won't really understand it. It's been a wild adventure. Really hard at times when you are in the mental health facility and your friend is showing you as a joke on South Park, you know? There's a part of me that laughs and there's a part of me that's like, oh, I never knew I had that on my bucket list to be a South Park joke. Following the release of the Coney 2012 film, Invisible Children began to unravel. 
Jason stepped aside in 2014, two years after Coney 2012 was released. And by then, Invisible Children was facing incredible hardships. We were really thinking that it was over. We didn't think of it being able to go on and exist up till today. You know, we were really looking at everything across the board and laying off staff and shutting down programs and really kind of minimizing um, what we could in order to have that transition at least be fruitful enough for them to keep going. It's something that Jolie also noticed while living in Uganda. I did not know how much money was raised. So I had no clue. I would also read through the media. So a few months later, when things settled down, then uh, we started talking with the CEO uh, that told us that after point 2012, the criticism and what happened to Jason Russell, the money started going away. Jolie said everything was downsized. So in the separation, they ended up saying, we are going to give you a hundred a thousand US dollars for you to finish the kids who are in school for that year. I finished one big building that was we were doing in a school in Hulu. And uh, that was it. And it wasn't too long after that Jolie would also be let go. The CEO walked in and said, we have come to end your contract. And I said, I'm not ending my contract. Then they took me to the Invisible Children office with nobody inside. Said, look, the office is now empty. We can't keep you anymore. And I still repeated to them, I said, my vision of Invisible Children was about, wasn't about me getting a salary. It was about the pain I went through and I wanted the story to be known and that I wanted the end of Joseph Cohen to come because I kind of felt it went from me to other kids now to Congo to Central Africa. That is not what I'm going to accept. Jason said the decision to walk away was one of the hardest decisions he has ever had to make. For over a decade, he had spent time building this not-for-profit and watched it grow. He had formed some of his closest friendships through his work with Invisible Children. And now, he was unsure what the future would look like. A friend asked me, do you think you did everything in your power to do the job that you were supposed to do, which was tell the story? Do you think you did it? And I said, yes. And then he said, can you imagine that your job is done? And that's hard for me to swallow because I really do want justice for my friends. I do really want Coney to be held accountable for his crimes. And while Jason stepped away eight years ago, Invisible Children has continued to operate. Jason says one of the biggest successes they had was something they started working on while he was there— It's called the Early Warning Radio Network. They are continuing the Early Warning Radio Network, reunification of children back to their families. And they also do these um, screenings in order to sensitize the communities. We make movies in the language in which the people live, which is sometimes the first movie they've seen in that language. And they watch it in order to welcome back rebel groups Um, it's called mobile cinema and it's basically what we were doing in the U.S., but it's in Central Africa and South Sudan and Congo where we pop up these screenings in these villages and we show movies in order for them to have empathy for individuals who are coming back from the rebel group. I reached out to Invisible Children in the U.S. and they provided me with a statement. The statement says, Invisible Children was founded in 2004 to help end years of mass violence and child abductions by Ugandan warlord Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. The statement reads, quote, Over the course of 10 years, Invisible Children mobilized a global movement of young activists, culminating with the online film Kony 2012 that served as a forceful call to action. We also know what it's like to be overcome with the pressure that is associated with overnight success. Coney 2012's unprecedented and unexpected success impacted our team and our organization in a myriad of ways. 
The campaign generated historic political momentum that helped to secure tens of millions of dollars in public and private funds for humanitarian assistance to LRA-affected communities and mobilized unprecedented global attention and action from policymakers. At the same time, the intense worldwide attention was destabilizing to the organization— It triggered the unfortunate breakdown of one of our founders and changed the context for our grassroots awareness efforts overnight, ultimately leading Invisible Children to significantly downsize and restructure the organization in late 2014 and install a transition team, unquote. Today, Invisible Children says they have a new board of directors, a new CEO, and a new global leadership team. In 2021, Invisible Children said 127 LRA escapees were reunited with their families. For Jolie, after she left Invisible Children, she started a spin-off not-for-profit called Invisible Children Uganda. Now on the ground, uh, we are focusing more on the girl-child education. I am one proud girl uh, that I felt education took me away from my past bad experience. So I am still a strong advocate for education. We are, we have one big partner uh, in the United States called Gendercide Awareness. Uh, it's an organization based out of Texas that every year through them, we can afford to put about 15 girls in school. So that is now the only organization that we have that is working with us You might be wondering what's happened to the LRA in the nearly 10 years since the Coney 2012 film was released. Earlier, I mentioned how the U.S. sent elite troops to help aid in the disarmament of the LRA. Laura C. says U.S. troops were pulled out of the area. It is an extraordinarily costly mission for the United States. Again, I mentioned before that uh, there was no funding allocated for this. So the Department of Defense has to pull funds from other activities around the world. Um, Now, the United States Department of Defense is not hurting for funds, right? Like, like, is it is it that bad? I don't know. But but, you know, I don't think most American taxpayers were aware that their government spent somewhere between about 650 million to a billion dollars over the course of five years equipping and supplying these 100 troops in a very remote part of the world trying to track down a warlord and and his cronies. Um, But that's what happened. Um, And the mission was ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, It ended in 2017. They they didn't have a budget anymore for it. And the feeling was that it had kind of been mostly an exercise in futility. Coney's whereabouts are still unknown and the international criminal court charges are still pending. But Coney wasn't the only person charged. In 2005, there were several top commanders who had been charged for their role with the LRA. Since then, two have died, so their arrest warrants were terminated. In 2015, Dominic Onwin surrendered. He was charged with 61 counts of crimes against humanity and war crimes allegedly committed after July 1st, 2002. In February 2021, Onwin was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Laura says, with Coney and one other still at large, the LRA continues to operate. So the LRA is still very much a threat. Um, they, they move um, around. Like I said, they always keep moving, right? Because I uh, fear of being captured, but also some, some like seasonal movement with rainy seasons and that kind of thing. Um, and they continue to move in that area where Northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo and Southeastern Central African Republic and South Sudan meet. Um, They are not nearly as strong as they used to be. They're not nearly as many members as there used to be. And they're kind of, they're divided into smaller groups that move around together. There's, there's, you know, these kind of like bands of of people, Um, but they are still capable of terrorizing citizens and um, of doing horrible things. Jason Russell says he is still dealing with the viral attention he received on account of trying to make Coney famous. Over the last, you know, 10 years, the internet itself is triggering to me. I don't know when an article or a video or some kind of comment will will come up. And so 
It's really learning how the people who know me, they're the ones that matter. It's like my friends, my family, and that's really what what matters. The the internet is just can be so toxic and so damaging that um, I really have to learn how to have boundaries and create a space in which I can do well and be well, regardless of what strangers might might think of me. And I asked him, is there anything he would change? I find it hard to answer a question like, what would you change? Because I don't know if I would, even though mistakes were surely made. I do think that Coney 2012 on its own is just this like singular example of what happens when people commit themselves to a mission, to a vision. You know, the mission was to make Coney famous. We did that. Behind that mission was to remove him and other commanders from the battlefield, from hurting communities, from displacing millions of people. Did we accomplish that? No, we haven't. We haven't. And honestly, it breaks my heart and not a day goes by, I don't think. When is justice gonna happen? My hope is that when people think of Coney 2012, they think of the unity that we had. 120 million people saw it in a week. I hope that that will be the focus and I hope that when history is written that we will view it as an imperfect attempt to pursue the long journey that is justice. Thank you for joining me this week. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Eric Vela, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselback, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow this show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. We'll see you next time.